Our scripture reading today is from Colossians 1. You can find that on page 10 of your bulletin, and it will be projected above. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jack. All right, uh, kids, I mentioned that uh, Trinity Kids Bulletin. Here are the things to, to listen for and to jot down. One is an illustration about an iceberg. Uh, secondly, an illustration about the game Jenga. If you don't know, you need to know, okay? And then uh, finally, a connection between head and body, okay? So iceberg, Jenga, and the connection between a head and a body. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we come to, uh, to this great passage together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, we pray that you would open our blind eyes, that you would soften our hard hearts, that you would unstop our ears, that we might behold Jesus in all of the ways that he is described in this beautiful passage. We pray that, that we would be drawn to him as we see him more for who he really is. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, well, I think this, this finally uh, wraps up spring break for everybody. I know we had kind of two weeks of it. Um, for, for me, there was only one year in college uh, that we did like a real spring break trip. And it was a trip out west uh, my junior year. And it was this long road trip, and the first stop uh, was at the Grand Canyon. And so what we did is we left late afternoon on a Friday from Fort Worth in the afternoon. What that ended up doing, though, is it meant that we got to the Grand Canyon the next morning just as the sun was rising. And I don't know if this has been the case for you at all, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, but you've seen literally hundreds of pictures of it, right? Like, you know exactly what it, what it looks like. You've studied it in school. You may have even been in awe by it if you've seen some videos, maybe even like an IMAX kind of a movie about it. But it is nothing compared to actually seeing it in person. Where you're standing there on the edge of this place, and for us it was this cold morning in March where the weather was amazing with the sun rising, and you see it in front of you, and for the first time you see it for what it really is. And it feels like something completely different. Like there were whole parts of this you didn't really understand previously. So much more than what you thought. And I mention that because I think that's what happens to us when it comes to our view of Jesus as well. 
So for example, it could be that, that you view him as primarily the one who has dealt with your sin. And that's good news, right? That he has provided forgiveness for you. But if you're honest, that feels like something that is sort of in the past. And that, that, that what he does for you doesn't have much to say to your life right now. Not much difference in your everyday life now. Or it may be that you view him as one who genuinely loves you. But you don't view him as one who has any real power to change you or to change your relationships or to change your family in any substantial way. He loves you, but he's a bit powerless. It could be that you're one who, who views his deity in a big way and his divinity stands very prominent to you and you see him as one who rules over all things. Here's the only problem with that. It seems like maybe if he rules over all things, then why would he want anything to do with these little insignificant details of my life? And so in all of those ways, we have this sort of partial view of Jesus, and that's the problem. All of us have that. It's an incomplete view of him in some way. And so uh, Dane Ortland compares this to an iceberg. So kids, you've probably seen a picture of an iceberg before. You can't see an entire iceberg there's just a small bit of it that is above the surface of the water and the overwhelming majority of it is beneath the water and you can't even see it. And so what, what, what uh, Ortland says is, is that that's sort of how it is with our knowledge of Jesus. He says it this way. Consider the possibility that your current mental idea of Jesus is the tip of the iceberg, that there are wondrous depths to him, realities about him still awaiting your discovery. And so, so most of the time, for, for all of us, there are parts or aspects or features of him and his character that we, that we don't see. We don't have the, the, the full picture of who he really is. So what Paul gives us in this passage is the full picture. It is a, a picture of the whole Christ. And if I had come to that title by the time we printed bulletins, that's what would be printed there. So instead, you just got it above here. The whole Christ, that's what Paul gives us in this hymn. And so that's what the, the, this section is. It was uh, used in the early church as a hymn in their worship. And if you, you notice, it kind of has that feel. Some have, have called this a, a picture of the cosmic Christ. Pastor Andy used that language when, uh, from a sermon in Ephesians a few weeks back. But the reason that that language is used is because it talks about Jesus in relation to the entire cosmos, all of creation, all of new creation. So it's literally a passage that describes Jesus's relationship to reality. So you can say like, okay, what's this passage about? Well, it's about Jesus's relationship to everything, right? Past, present, and future. And so uh, I've preached this passage before, but I did it in four sermons, right? Um, and it still felt like we were just scratching the surface. And I mentioned that because this is the kind of passage that you can spend your life soaking in. And as I mentioned last week, I would actually encourage you to do just that, to meditate on these words, to memorize these words, to steep yourself in these words. Why? Because it's this passage that's gonna help you see these vast parts of the iceberg that you would never see otherwise. That it will actually give you a bigger, fuller, more biblical, and more beautiful picture 
of who Jesus really is. And, and that's actually what Paul is trying to do for the Colossians in the situation they find themselves. So remember, he's writing this letter to them as they are facing this false teaching. And the false teaching probably revolves somewhat around the question of, is Jesus enough for growth in the Christian life? Or is there something or some experience or, or some practice that, that we need to add to him in order to really grow in the Christian life? And so the way that Paul counters that false teaching is not to hit it head on, although he does that a little bit in, in chapter two. It's instead to put on display the beauty, the, the, the supremacy, the, the all-sufficiency of Christ. To show in every way that he is enough. And that's what we get in this passage. So here's how I wanna frame our time today. I wanna ask and answer this question. What more do we get of Jesus in this passage? Or another way to say it is, what, what are some parts of the iceberg beneath the surface that this passage shows to us? So give us three. Here's the first. Jesus is Lord of creation. He's Lord of creation. So Paul starts by saying in verse 15 that Jesus is the one who is the image of the invisible God. He says, Jesus shows us who God is. And this is the, the same point that John makes in the first chapter of his gospel. He says this, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, that is Jesus, has made him known. The author of Hebrews says it this way. This is our call to worship. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, if you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know what God is like, then look at Jesus He's the one who for us reveals God. He defines God for us. Here's what's interesting though. Jesus also shows us what true humanity looks like. And here's what I mean by that. Remember, we are created in the image of God. And part of our call was to, to reflect his image to the world. We have failed to do that in our sin. But part of what Jesus' work is, is to restore the image of God in humanity. And so that's what he's done. He is the perfect image of God. And so if you want to know what it looks like to be truly human, then look at Jesus. And so just one quick implication of this. What that means is that becoming more like Jesus or, or pursuing Christ's likeness is actually the pathway to become more truly human and not less. In other words, every single thing that Jesus calls you to is for your good. Everything that he calls you to, even if it means putting aside these deep-seated desires within you, parts of you that you might even say are really a central part of me, are yet things that I can lay aside because I'm on the way to this path of full humanity. And so uh, I heard this point actually first from, uh, from a pastor named Sam Alberry, who was preaching on this, uh, on this passage. And I, 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 it carried unique weight coming from him for this reason. Sam is a same-sex attracted Christian. And so he holds to a biblical view of sexuality. And though he has these desires for men of the same sex, he has, out of obedience to Jesus, chosen not to act on that. Now, some might hear that and you might think, that sounds dehumanizing. To deny those desires within you. And his point, though, is that the exact opposite is true. 
Because he knows that there is, he knows this Jesus is never one who would call him to anything that is dehumanizing. On his pathway to become more and more like Christ is actually the pathway to true humanity. And that is true of every single one of us. There are things that Jesus might call you to that are deeply costly and hard. And yet that is the path to true humanity. Because he is the one who is the truest and fullest image of the invisible God and of humanity in that. And so as this this image of the invisible God, the way Paul describes in verse 15, he says a couple more things about him here. He says first, that Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. And so that's what he says in verse 16. He says that in him, or the ESV has it as by him, all things were created. All things were created through Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We, we probably don't usually think about Jesus as being the one involved in creation, right? We usually think about, like, that, that's usually something that the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is doing. But what Paul says is that everything was made through him. And, by the way, this is really helpful in clearing up this phrase, the firstborn of all creation, like, you might have heard that and thought, like, okay, but when we hear firstborn, you think of the oldest child, right? But the, the problem with that, though, is that when you apply that to Jesus, that would mean that he's created. And if he was created, then that means he wasn't God. So what we need to see here is that firstborn does not mean created. What it means is this place of prominence, this most important place. This is actually, and I think this is helpful. This is the same term that's used to describe David in Psalm 89, King David. So it's a term that applies to kings. And so what Paul's saying here is that Jesus is the king. He is the Lord of creation. And as Lord, he says, all things were created through him. Okay, so what does he mean then by all things? Well, he says, let me tell you this, middle of verse 16. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Press pause just for a second here. What, what does all things in heaven and on earth include? Everything, Right? Okay, and think about this question for a minute. Is there anything that is not included in the phrase visible or invisible? That's kind of like hurt your mind, right? No, it's everything. Everything is created through him and for him. Keep going in that same verse. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, probably some of what he's getting at here is that even these powers in the unseen world that the Colossians might have been tempted towards are those things that were created by Jesus and through Jesus. In other words, there is nothing outside his control. There is nothing over which he does not say, mine. He's the one through whom all things were made. And so Paul says that about, uh, about Christ. He goes on to say this as well. Jesus is the one in whom all things hold together. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he just said all things were created through him, but the picture we get here of Jesus is not then of him taking his hands off the wheel. The picture that we get instead is Jesus as one who is upholding and sustaining everything right now. So kids, uh, think about that game Jenga, you know, where you, the blocks are built up and you have to pull these blocks out, put them on top. There usually comes a time in that game where there is one block that is upholding the entire structure. And you know that if you pull that block and if you have the misfortune of being the one who has to do it because it's the only move you have left, then everything's gonna come crashing down, right? It's that peace that keeps everything from falling apart. 
See, that, that's sort of the role that Jesus has in relation to the entire world. He sustains everything. He is right now actively upholding it. In him, everything holds together. Okay, so what, what does that mean for us? I want to suggest two things, two implications for us. Here's the first. If Jesus is Lord of creation, then he is in control of the largest events of the world and, and the smallest details of your life. And he's not just in control of those things. He actually cares deeply about them. And so what that means is that as Lee just rightly play, prayed, Jesus cares deeply about the war and the conflict in Ukraine. He cares deeply about these, these global events that are happening and at the same time, he cares deeply for the sorrow and the grief that you experience in your struggle to have children or in your desire to be married. And, and here's what's so important about that. I, I, I think it could be easy to think that if Jesus is in control of all these huge things that are going on, then does he really care about how torn up I am about this breakup or this lost job or the fact that I'm not sure that we're gonna be able to pay our bills this month? Does he really care about those small things? And the answer of Colossians 1 is yes. Jesus is Lord over every single bit of that and all of it matters deeply to him. That's the first thing to see. Here's the second. If Jesus is Lord over creation, then it's in him that all things hold together, even if in you everything is falling apart. Because if you are one who has put your faith in this king, then even the most frightening, the most overwhelming, the most sorrowful, the most burdensome thing that you are carrying and facing right now is under Jesus' sovereign care. And that is because he is Lord over all right now. And, and here's the thing. I know there are plenty of times where you can't see that, where it doesn't feel like he is in control of those things in your life like that. What Colossians 1 says, though, is that that doesn't mean it's not true. Paul actually says specifically that he is the ruler over all things visible and invisible. We're going to sing, uh, This is my Father's World, at the end today as our departing hymn, and we'll sing this line. And though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Because all things were created through him and for him. Because in him, all things hold together. Jesus is the Lord of creation. So that's part of the iceberg beneath the surface that we might not always see. Here's the second part that Jesus is head of the church, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. So first, a little bit of context even just as to where this falls in the passage. Paul has just talked about Jesus in relationship to creation. He moves in this verse into this section about Jesus' relationship to redemption. And so it's very intentional here, of course, that his word about the church is in transition between those two. This is the beginning of the section about redemption. Here's why that matters. It's because Christ's work of redemption actually begins in and even with the church. And, and this is true in a couple of ways. One is that those in the church are those who have been redeemed by Jesus. 
We are those who have already experienced this redemption. But secondly, the church is also the place to look to see what God will do one day for the entire world. And that's some of what we're going to look at uh, in the final point. So I just want to think for a minute here about this image of Jesus as head of the body. So a couple, a couple points on that from this passage. One is this. As head of the body, he is the Lord of our life as a church. He is the Lord of our life as a church. That's what he's getting at when he talks about being the head of the church. So if you think about uh, the, the head of an organization, what that individual does is going to be one who, who will provide leadership and direction for that organization. And so that's some of what Paul's saying here, but he's saying it in a way that's so much stronger than that. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the king of the church. And so part of what that means is that he is the one who leads us. He's the one who governs us, and this is where it gets really important for us. He is the one who shapes our life. He is the one who calls us to live and to be in a certain way. And the way that he does that, the way that he exercises his authority in our life is through his word and spirit. It is by his word that he exercises this lordship over us. He is the Lord of our life as a church. That's one thing to see about this imagery. Here's the other though. As head of the body, he's also the source of our life as a church. The source of our life. So think about the connection between a head and a body. Kids, I want you to think about that for a second. If you were to have a head without a body, it would be bad, right? Things don't go well if that connection is severed, and uh, we don't want that. So that's some of what that illustration's getting at. We don't want to press that too far. But, uh, but what we want to see here is that there is this organic, life-giving connection between the head and the body. And it's a picture here of our connection to Jesus, that Jesus is the one who gives life to his people. And apart from him, there is no life. And so Paul actually develops this imagery a little bit more in chapter two. He says this, holding fast to the head, speaking of Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So remember, again, Paul's audience. Think think about the, the church in Colossae for a moment here. Why would that be important for them to hear? Well, because the life with God that they may be tempted to try to find in some other place or maybe in some other way is actually life that is found only in Jesus. And and we might even say more specifically, Jesus gives us that fullness of life through his church. And and that's what's so important, I think, for, for us to see too, that the fullness of life that you and I long for, the 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 growth the change that you want and I want in our lives is the life that comes from Jesus alone because he is the source of it. And here's what's important. The way that he gives that life to us is through his church. Okay, how so? What do I mean by that? Well, I know that I always mention worship as an application of this because worship is this primary and central place where God dwells with us and it's this place where he's at work in us through his word and sacrament. But because I always make that application, I'm not gonna do it right now. So let me mention another way. Did you see what I did right there? Let me mention another way. It's through relationships in the church. Through relationships in the church. One of the ways that Jesus gives us his life is through one another. 
And so Paul Tripp uh, says it this way. He says that we are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. In other words, one of the ways that Jesus is at work in my life is through you. And, and, and this is especially true if you think about those times in your life when it is hard to believe the gospel for yourself. When maybe you are so beaten down by your own sin, maybe you are so beaten down by your own suffering that these words in the Bible just feel like words on a page. And it is so hard to follow him in that moment and believe that he loves you. It is at those times, especially those times, that I need you. And it's at those times in your life that you need me. And so uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor uh, in Germany during the Holocaust, says this. This is paraphrasing him. He, he says that the Jesus in you is stronger or more real than the Jesus in me. And he's not saying that like Jesus is actually stronger in you or something like that and weaker in me. What he's saying is that the words of gospel truth, the words of gospel encouragement are so much easier for me to hear, so much more real to me, so much easier to believe when I hear them coming out of your mouth to me than they are when I try to tell them to myself. See, Paul's point here is that Jesus gives us life through the church, which means it, he gives us life through one another. Jesus is the head of the church. So that's another part of, of the iceberg here that, that's beneath the service. The third final part from this passage that I want to highlight is this, that Jesus is the resurrected reconciler. He's the resurrected reconciler. Sorry, I know that's pretty cheesy. But those are the two big points here in this final section. That first, he is the resurrected king. Look at verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, I think we're probably at Trinity pretty used to talking about the importance of the resurrection. It's something that we hit on a lot. It is literally the most important event in human history that has ever happened or will ever happen. It is, uh, it is this truth, this event upon which our faith stands or falls. Paul says that our faith is in vain if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It could not be more important to our life as a church. However, the way that Paul's talking about it right here sounds a little weird, right? He says that Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So what does he mean by that? Well, what Paul's saying is that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the resurrection that is still yet to come. The resurrection that God is gonna bring about for every single one of his people when Jesus returns. Jesus is the beginning of that resurrection. And so it's right for him to say that he is the firstborn from the dead, but there are gonna be many more who are born from the dead. That's part of what he's saying, but it's also, though, the beginning of what God is going to do for the entire creation. Because when Jesus returns, what he's going to do is make all things new. And so his resurrection is the beginning of that new world. It is the beginning of new creation breaking into this old, broken down creation. And it is the guarantee that that new age will one day come. And so that's actually some of what Paul describes in verses 19 and 20. 
that Jesus is also the one through whom God will reconcile all things. So look at verse 19. In, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Okay, so think about this. So to say that Jesus is going to reconcile all things means that, obviously, things need to be reconciled, right? But, but that means then that this world has been broken in some sense, that it's been torn apart, that's been rent asunder in that way. And, and that's actually one of the ways that the Bible talks about the fall. So when, when God created the man and the woman, everything was working the way it was supposed to. The man and the woman dwelt with God in a perfect relationship. They dwelt with one another in this relationship that was as it should be. They related to the created order in the way that it was supposed to be. Everything was whole. It was, it was together. Now, what sin has done, it has torn them apart. All because of our rejection of God and rebellion against him. And so what Paul is saying here is that God is going to one day make this world whole again. And the way that he's gonna do that is through the reconciling power of Jesus. He is going to one day put back together all of these broken pieces. How is he gonna do that? Verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. He would do it in the only way that it could possibly be done. Where Jesus himself, this one who is the image of the invisible God, the one through whom, for whom all things were created and the one in whom all things hold together is the one who stepped into this conflict to offer his very self as a sacrifice for our sin. That is the language used here. It is the blood of his cross that was the necessary offering for your sin and my sin. And the reason that he did that was so that one day this world will one day be reconciled to its maker and made whole again. So that's the cosmic picture of what Jesus will do as the one through whom all things will be reconciled. Paul says also though, this applies to you. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, you need to be reconciled to God as well. And what Paul says is that the one who will reconcile all things to God is the same one who can reconcile you to God. And that's what Jesus offers you. He offers you life with him, who is the Lord of creation and the one who is sustaining all things in your life right now. He, he offers you his life through his body, which is the church. And he offers you reconciliation with the Father right now. And at the very same time, this guarantee that the resurrection that is coming in the future will be your resurrection. It is as certain as Jesus rising from the dead. See, that is the whole Christ. And this is the Christ that offers himself to you. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there is so much in this passage. He is one that we could gaze at for all eternity 
and never come close to exhausting. And so, Father, we pray that even just today with this little bit of time spent in this passage that you might further fix our eyes upon him, that you would give us a greater gaze at his beauty, that we would be transformed by him, that we would see his all-sufficiency, the supremacy that he has over all things in heaven and on earth. We pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen.